Good morning. Uh, today's reading is from Acts chapter 13, verses 26 to 30. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? That's right. The runaway son has returned. Man, it's been a minute since I've been up here. I think it was August, I think, was the last time I taught. I'm a little rusty. My apologies. Why, thank you. You guys have a good Christmas? Good. Good deal. Good deal. Uh, I just got back from Wisconsin. We got back yesterday at 3, uh, and so I wrote this message between the hours of 3 and 4.30 this morning. You're welcome. <laughs> So here we go. The title of the sermon today is, But God, and we're going to need it. You know, normally we are in a teaching series, right? And week after week after week after week, we're in a book of the Bible. We're going verse by verse. We're working our way through uh, a book of the Bible. And next week, we're going to start in the book of Ruth, which I'm excited for. It's a phenomenal book with an amazing story. And it's something that a lot of churches honestly just don't dig into. And so I'm excited that we're going to spend time week after week looking at this incredible story of God providing and looking at hope in a very, very hard time for the characters uh, that we find in this story. But this week, uh, I am up to punt. So it's not tied to anything in particular. So here we go. Christmas, for most of us, is December 25th, right? We think of Christmas as just a day. But really, Christmas is a Christian festival that culminates on the 25th, right? We've got the season of Advent that leads up to Christmas, and for four weeks, it is taking time to anticipate the arrival of the Messiah King Jesus, right? And so, for four weeks, we're thinking through uh, love and joy and peace all these things of what Christ brings and what Christ means. But for me, it's been a season of looking for the but God. And so in fact, uh, everyday Christmas, the first week, uh, Pastor Brad's talking about prayer, uh, and I'm just sitting there looking through the story, and I'm like, but God, but God, but God, but I, would, I didn't pay attention to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, the Christmas story is like the ultimate but God story though, isn't it, right? Creation was an absolute mess, but God sent his son to save the world. And inside of this but God story are a bunch of other but God stories, right? Elizabeth, Zachariah, they don't have a child in their old age, but God gives them one through John. Mary and Joseph, there's mistrust in their relationship because she's pregnant and it ain't his. But God provides unity around this unborn baby for them, right? Herod, sets out a genocide for all children, uh, male children under two, but God sends their family to Egypt to keep them safe. And so even though these words, but God, are not in the text, they appear over and over again. But this phrase, but God, does appear 45 times in Scripture. 
This phrase, but God, is always followed by radical change after these two words. Because these two words contain the message of the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce says, may I put it quite simply, if you understand these two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. But God. Who in your loves a good movie? Yeah, who in your loves a good TV show, right? They're movies for seven years with a lot of commercials. What about a book? Good books? You guys like to read? All right, so I realized and had two people in first service uh, admit that they will read the end of a book to see if it's good before they read the rest of the story. Do we have any of you weirdos in here right now? No. We've got Mike. Of course. We're a people that love the beginning and the end, aren't we? I mean, if you go to see a movie and it's super, super slow, what happens? You turn it off. Why? Because it didn't pique my interest. But what if the beginning is good, but the end is bad? Well, then it was just a waste of time, wasn't it, right? It was a horrible ending. Who here spent six years of your life watching Lost? (laughs) I did not, and I never will. Why? Because the ending was terrible. Right? We are people that love a good beginning and love a good end. This is why we love sports. We love a good Hail Mary, don't we? The end of a game. Baseball, nothing better. Nothing better than a homer in the bottom of the ninth. A walk-off. We love these moments. In fact, last night, because I was still working on this message, I was watching the Dallas Cowboys win a sham of a football game over the last play. Had a crazy ending. But what if the greatest story isn't about the beginning or the end, but it's actually about the middle? What if the greatest story ever told saved the best for the middle? You see, over the years, since moving here, my wife and I have started to make it kind of a routine in our life to go somewhere uh, in nature. And I love this because I like to take pictures and I like having no cell reception one of my favorite things in life. And so over fall break, we ended up going east. We went down to West Virginia. We went to the New River Gorge. We went to Sandstone Falls. We went to Babcock State Park. We went and saw all this stuff in West Virginia. And then we kept going east until we landed in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Shenandoah National Park. We camped in a tent. I totally forgot that on top of a mountain is 10 degrees colder than in the valley. And we were not prepared. But food tastes better around a campfire, and coffee tastes better around a campfire. And so uh, in West Virginia, Virginia, we, we were camping. And again, one of my favorite things about going to places like this is taking pictures. And so uh, I remember back to a high school photography teacher who said, if you want to take interesting photos, you need to go to interesting places. What's more interesting than the highest point in the park, right? So I started uh, looking, and I found out that there is a mountain called Hawksbill Mountain that is the highest peak in Shenandoah National Park. And it sits at 4,049 feet, which, compared to the 700 feet we're at here in Shelbyville, is pretty high. Now, uh, I've been to the Rockies in Colorado. I've been to the Rockies up in Montana. I've been to the Tetons in Wyoming. I've been to Mount Rainier. I've been to a lot of mountains that are far taller than Hawksbill, but I've never climbed to the top of any of them. 
except for Hawksbill. Yeah, woo. You see, there's only one way to get to the top of Hawksbill Mountain in Shenandoah National Park. You have to walk there. And there is one trail, it's a loop trail, that makes its way all the way around. And so you start in the parking lot, and if you go to the left, you do all of the elevation in about half a mile. If you go to the right, you do all the elevation in about two and a half miles. So me, being brilliant, said, let's just get it out of the way. So we went to the left. A minute in, my daughter regretted being adopted into our family. <laughs> she is dying. <laughs> Guys, why are we doing this? Two minutes in, half her water bottle's gone. She's drenched. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm so hot. Five minutes in, Taylor and I are standing on the side of the trail, waiting. So we didn't want to be the parents who left our kid in the woods. <laughs> now, Taylor's a better parent than I am. And so uh, when I am dealt with complaint, I'm like, you need to suck it up. Let's go. My wife is like, hey, I will race you to that tree. So my wife starts running up a mountain. What does the child do? Starts running after mom up a mountain. Six minutes in there on the side of the hill, dead. Like praying for oxygen. And I just keep walking past them. I'm good. I got this, right? We're walking up a mountain. I'm taking pictures. It's going to be great until minute eight. Then somebody poured gas down my throat and lit a match because my lungs were on fire. Whew, right? Ten minutes in, I've got a double bass drum going in my chest. It's like a metal band inside of me. Right, that was my heart. Twelve minutes in, I can taste blood. I'm like, why is it so dry and so wet at the same time? Right, fifteen minutes in, my face develops its own heartbeat. And this went on for 30 minutes. And every 15 seconds of that 30 minutes was a cry from about 100 feet behind, Dad, are we there yet? Child, does it look like we're there yet? Until we got there. See, for 45 minutes, every step, one step after another, was one foot of elevation gain. You just kept going and going and going, and straight in front of you was nothing but gravel and rocks. Until eventually it wasn't. And there was a clearing, and you could see for miles. And so we get to the top of Hawksbill Mountain, and this is what I saw. Maybe. <laughs> Never mind. It was the top of a mountain. You could see for miles. And it's somewhat cloudy out at this point in time. There we go. And the sun is peeking down in between these breaks in the clouds and it's illuminating these cliffs off into the distance. And we went, like I said, it was cold. It was like 50 degrees up there. It was delicious. It doesn't really look like it. The leaves were starting to turn in Virginia at this point. There's nothing like the top of a mountain is there. I mean, you, you get up there and your breathing starts to slow back down. 
and your heart starts to beat at a normal pace, and the burning that you were feeling in your muscles is starting to be replaced with the endorphins from the exercise, and for that moment, you are on top of the world. You're just drinking it in, watching the birds glide through the gentle breeze. And then you remember that you walked up to the top of a mountain, which means you have to walk back down the mountain. Now we had already gotten the elevation out of the way, so we were gonna take the long way around because it was gonna be far easier except that that side of the loop trail has like 15 other trails that connect to it. And uh, things weren't clearly marked. And so we begin our descent and we're going and we're going down the mountain, right? That's where we're going. We're going, we're going, we're going. And then I pull out GPS on my phone. I don't have cell reception, remember. And I'm looking and I'm like, oh, the arrow is not where it's supposed to be. Uh oh, we gotta go back up to get to where we're going. Now my daughter had no clue really what was going on because she was just following us, but it didn't take long for the wise words of a nine-year-old to say, Dad, if we're going down the mountain, why am I going back up the mountain? And what I thought was gonna be a really simple trek back ended up being almost as challenging, but just in different ways. See, it had rained the night before, and so we're making our way down all this elevation, and we're stepping on rocks that are slippery. They're covered in moss. We're walking through streams. We're, we're in this huge rock field. We actually get onto what is known as the Appalachian Trail, and it, it runs from uh, Georgia all the way to Maine, and a huge stretch of it runs through Virginia. And so we're walking on this trail, and we get to this big rock field where all of the rocks are the size of a football and you're stepping on them, and they're shifting under your weight, and the whole time you're just looking for rattlesnakes who are out bathing in the sun. And eventually, we made it back to the car, to the cooler with the cool drinks and lunch, and everything was right in the world again. But what's interesting is the view that we have from the top of the mountain, really it's the same view we have going down the mountain, it's just from a different perspective, isn't it? It's more intimate. Things are up close and personal. There's challenges. But you were at the top of the mountain. You saw what was at the top of the mountain. You've been changed by the top of the mountain. How often is that our relationship with Jesus, right? It's full of pain, it's full of struggle, it's full of just praying that the good Lord will take you. Then you meet him and you're changed. And you have this top of the mountain experience that is filled with awe. And this is why new Christians talk about Jesus. They're excited by Jesus, they're enamored by Jesus. They wanna share with everybody else about Jesus But eventually you have to make your way down from the mountain and it gets harder and eventually we become more enamored with our circumstances than we are with what we experienced at the top. Uh, I worked at a camp before I moved here 
And we talked about the kids that would show up and have a spiritual high every week. And then they'd have to go home and they'd have to figure out how to navigate life as somebody who had made a decision to follow Jesus back home with all of the distractions and all of the challenges and all of the dysfunction that they left when they came to camp. The reality is most of us We're on our way down the mountain, right? We've had that experience where we've come to know Christ. We've put our faith in Christ. We've trusted Christ. We have experienced that. And we're on our way down the mountain. It gets a little harder to see things, right? There's challenges. There's circumstances that start to fog our perspective, You see, the way down is up and up close. It's personal. The way down means there's going to be challenges. The way down is the process of becoming more like Jesus. The way down involves dying to yourself to be more like your Savior. This is the gospel story. It's a way up and it's a way down. The gospel is a mountaintop story. We're going to see it this morning in a couple different ways. How many of you are familiar with Noah and the Ark? I think All of humanity knows this story. So, if you brought a Bible, open up to Genesis 6. That's where we're going to start today. It's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, and it's one of the most neutered stories in the Bible. Uh, We have completely rounded the edges, we've softened it, and we've turned it into a cute flannel graph of a dopey giraffe sticking its head out out of a tiny ship. In fact, this story's been so romanticized that the largest water park in the United States is Noah's Ark up in the Wisconsin Dells, right? But I have a feeling if people took seriously what happened, aka everyone drowning, they probably wouldn't name their water park that. You see, we've made this story about animals on a boat and taught our kids that if you're really good, God will keep you safe. And that's not... The story, the truth is that this is a story of salvation, which means somebody is being saved from something. So let's dig in. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to run through this story really quick. Verse 5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I'm going to skip ahead, but God goes on to tell Noah how he is to build the ark, very specifically, that his family is going to live on the ark, that he's supposed to gather pairs of every type of animal and the necessary food that everyone's going to need. Verse 22, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Genesis 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to, Moses, or Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Verse 10. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth, and the rain fell upon for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Could you imagine Mount Everest being covered in 20 feet of water? The waters prevailed among the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land and whose nostrils were the breath of life he blotted out. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days, chapter 8. But God, but God remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all of the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent forth a raven and it went to and fro until the waters were dried from the earth. Verse 10, he waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. See, the point of this story isn't that Noah was good and everyone else was bad. This is a salvation story. In fact, Noah isn't even the main character of this story, God is. Right? This entire story points to God. God created everything, and after creating it, he said, it is good. And then he created man and woman, and he said, it is very good. You know, this story is not that far removed from the creation story, and things have gone so sideways that God regrets his creation. This story reveals God's hatred of sin. If you don't believe that sin is a big deal, let this be a warning to you. Right? For the wages of sin is death. It's a theme that runs throughout the story arc of the Bible. And God is so troubled by the sin of his creation, he wants to destroy it. He is so grieved that he wants it gone. But there's a shift in this story that happens when we're introduced to Noah. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now this statement has a pretty subdued meaning in English. Because when I read that, I read it as but God really liked Noah. What's interesting is that the word favor also translates grace in the Hebrew language that this was written in. This is the first time that we find the word grace in scripture, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, amid a sin-corrupted world, God looked down on Noah and decided to treat him differently. He decided not to give him the judgment that his sins deserve, but instead to bless him and to preserve the entire human race through him. The first significant statement made about Noah tells us more about God's grace than it does about Noah himself. It's only after noting that Noah received grace that Moses, who authored this story, talks of Noah's righteousness. The only reason that Noah was right before the Lord was because of God's grace on Noah. 
It was because of God's grace on Noah that he created this covenant with Noah, right? So Noah takes the instruction that God gives him, builds an ark, collects two of every animal, along with his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. They collect food, and they enter the ark, and it starts to rain. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth, and the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. At the end of 150 days, the water had receded. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark and sent out a raven, and he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. See, the use of numbers is very specific. There's a reason for it. And so we go from 7 to 40 to 150. And then from 150 down to 40, down to 7. See, if the gospel's a mountain experience, the story is a gospel story. It also builds in the middle. And so in ancient literature, like the Bible, authors would frequently structure their story. And this structure was used to highlight the most important part. And this particular structure is called a chiasm. They're all throughout scripture. Jonah, the entire book, has a huge chiasm that you can follow. The story builds, and then it makes its way back down with connecting ideas. And so if this story is building to the main point of the flood, what sits directly in the middle of it? After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth, and the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subdued. At the end of 150 days, the water had receded. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened a window sent out a raven and he waited another seven days and again he set forth the dove from the ark. You see mankind deserved destruction and even Noah found himself in dire straits. Right? Floating with his family in a host of animals in a glorified box over a flood covered world. At this point the very heart of the story we encounter those two incredibly important words but God. But God remembered Noah and saved him. You know, when the Bible speaks of God remembering someone, it doesn't mean that he forgot who they were, right? Noah and his family are not floating in time out because God forgot he put them there. No, it means he's choosing to work on this person's behalf for their good, This definitely describes the flood account, right? With the rest of the world literally lying dead in judgment underneath them, Noah is floating aimlessly above them with a zoo in a box. And God remembered him, and God worked on his behalf for his good, and God saved him by reversing the flood and giving Noah a new world to live in. The flood account takes us up the mountain of God's grace and back down. Centering on this glorious point that the world was doomed to destruction, but God chose to remember one man and show him grace. 
And the storyline happens again and again and again throughout the Bible. Now, if we take a step back from this particular story and we just look at the main story arc of the Bible, which is made up of a bunch of different stories, I bet you'll never guess what sits in the middle. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. This is the text that was written, read earlier. Wow, words are hard today. Acts 13, starting in verse 26. It says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. It's at the very center of the storyline of the Bible that God changes everything. But God raised him from the dead. Too often we treat the resurrection as this afterthought to the great sacrifice that took place on the cross, right? And I'm not taking away from the cross, but the cross is not where you find your hope. You find your hope in the resurrection, right? The cross was our sin on display. The cross was our sentence. The cross is what we deserve. The cross represents death. It's on the cross that Jesus was our sacrifice. But the resurrection... That represents life. Jesus was put on the cross and he hung there until he died. Dying the death that I deserve, but God raised him up. They put him in a tomb and they rolled a stone over the door to close him in, but God got him out. They walked away and thought it was over, but God made sure it was just the beginning. For the believer, our hope is in the resurrection. Noah Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord amid a sin-filled world, corrupt. God looked at Noah and decided to treat him differently. And today, in the midst of a sin-corrupted world, God is looking at you. He's willing to treat you differently. For Noah, that came in the form of an ark. For us, that comes in the resurrected Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. For you are saved by grace. We gain life before a resurrected Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, we will be raised with him to new life. This morning, God wants to step into the middle of your story. So where do you find yourself? Because in scripture, to the left of the but God statements are the worst human atrocities characterized by disobedience and rebellion in hopelessness, in darkness, in death. And then comes those two beautiful words, but God. And to the right of those words come life, come hope, come righteousness, come justice, come grace. 
September 1st uh, marked 10 years that my wife and I have lived here in Shelbyville. Uh, That marks 10 years that we've been here at SEC. Uh, I am 38, which means I've spent more than a quarter of my life here in Shelbyville now. That's pretty wild. This is also the longest that I've been at one church in my entire life. And what I love about that is you see God answer prayers and God work in a way that you can't if you're in a place for a short period of time. So when my wife and I first get here, we're working with senior high students and I'm over in the theater room and I'm praying with a 17-year-old Jacob Nolly for his dad, Joe, that his dad would come to know who Jesus was. And honestly, from a human perspective, it didn't look good. But God got a hold of his heart. And he gave his life to Christ and he was baptized here at this church. One of the first people that I met in this church is a man named Alva Cat. And it wasn't long after we got here, he had been in an accident. Him and his wife, horrible motorcycle accident. And so I'm meeting Alva and he's facing like 9,000 surgeries. So he'd go in to get something fixed and it seemed like there was always a complication and he was in the hospital for months at a time and so on Fridays I'd go up and I'd sit with him. And I got to know Alva in the hospital. Ten years later, God has put him back together enough to where he was in Texas hunting two weeks ago. But God, he didn't shoot anything because he's a horrible hunter. but he's well enough to go do that. And I could do this for hours. I've seen God put marriages back together. Why? Because God. I've seen folks that have struggled with addiction, that have struggled with the justice system, have God intervene in the middle of their story and place them on a path of recovery where their hurts, habits, and hangups have been helped and healed. It's where these individuals are now leading at Celebrate Recovery. They're going into the jail and doing ministry with those that are incarcerated. There are people that were at other churches that have ended up here at SCC that I remember praying for before they ever got here. I didn't even know who they were. And go to their house and have dinner. It's wild, why? But God. You know, for so many of us, we allow that mountaintop experience to be the only thing that we experience when it comes to Jesus because the walk down is hard. But the walk down is when you really get to know him. That's when it gets intimate. That's when it gets real. That's when there's dependence. Right? When you're on top of the mountain, everything is awesome. But it doesn't stay there. The reason that these but God stories exist in the Bible is a reminder for who God is. And the reason there's but God stories in your life is a reminder for who he is. So whether you've said yes to Christ or you've never said yes to Christ, but God is willing to meet you in the middle. The part of the story that nobody here cares about. Because that's how God works. In a way that doesn't make sense to us. Our church is full of but God stories. 
Each of us is living a life full of but God moments. So tomorrow, as we begin a new year, nobody in here knows what's gonna happen. But God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it, that we get to learn from it. Thank you for the way that the authors penned these letters, that there is so much intentionality in their words and the way that they organize things that so frequently get lost on us. I'm grateful that favor means grace. I'm grateful that we have your story right in the middle of everything. For those that have never said yes to Jesus, I ask that you'd pray with me this. Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have wronged you and that I am operating outside of the way that you've created me to be. But I believe that Jesus died from my sins and that he rose from the dead. And because of that, I have new life in him. For those of us that have been on the mountaintop, that are on our way down, pray that we would never forget what you've done in our lives. Pray that those but God moments would be at the forefront of everything, every day. You've extended your grace to us. That when you didn't have to, you chose to treat us differently. So no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter what challenge we find ourselves in, no matter what seems to be overtaking us, they can't because you've already done it. I pray that we would live in that freedom with those reminders every day. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, it's been good to be